Thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and I hope you're doing great today, wherever you are and whatever it is you're doing. I'm looking forward to today's episode because we're going to pick up where we left off last week, talking about having a scriptural worldview or a scripturally informed worldview, I guess I should say, and the fact that so many Christians, myself included, have limited the application of Scripture to their view of the whole of reality, saying, as Albert Walters wrote in his little book, Creation Regained, that we looked at last week, that Scripture relates to maybe God and the church in my personal life, but not to the whole of the world. It's not a world view. It's a Bible and church kind of view that we have from Scripture. And all of our thoughts about all things need to be informed by Scripture. And we, we looked at how in the 1800s the changes taking place in America began to change the way the church looked at Scripture and salvation. That it moved from, admittedly, a perhaps a more doctrinaire and objective and sometimes cold orthodoxy to an emotive, subject-oriented view of salvation on the spot and how the church became transformed really from an organic body into which persons were received to an atomistic body into which anybody having had an, a conversion experience or an experience could could then join and accept it on, on the spot and oftentimes that process of sanctification was muted or thwarted because you were saved. You walked the aisle, you had the baptism, and you were on your way. Well, I said at the conclusion of last week's episode, we'd look at what was taking place in the several hundred years before that, that, that in part contributed to that approach in the church relative to Scripture. So I hope you find this exciting, even if sometimes disconcerting or disappointing, certainly informative and, and I hope helpful. I'm, I'm taking what I'm going to share today, again, from Nancy Piercy's book, Total Truth. If you've not read the book, I commend it to you highly, because I know people don't have a lot of time to read big books and lots of books, uh, and I've had the opportunity to do that over the last 20-something years. I want to share with you what I've gained in some of the reading that I've been able to take on. So Nancy notes that Francis Bacon revolutionized the study of science. Now Francis Bacon uh, lived in middle 1500s, died in 1626. He was a statesman, a philosopher, a theologian, you know, he was the Renaissance kind of man, but, but he changed the way we do science. Previously, there was sort of well, it wasn't sort of, it was an Aristotelian method, that there were certain things we took as true, and then we deduced from those truths our, our science. You remember, ultimately, the, the problem with uh, Galileo, that the church said, well, no, the, the earth has to be the center of the universe, because the earth is fixed, and it's on its foundations, and it won't move, so we, we can't have this theory that you've come up with. You've, you've deduced something wrong from that 
scripture verse. So, so Bacon says, you know, gosh, this, what we need to do is clear the decks, liberate our minds from all this metaphysical speculation and hypothesizing about um, the nature of things and the nature of God or whatever it might be when it comes to science at least and just clear our minds and let the facts speak for themselves and then we'd compile all those facts into an inductively developed system. So we would look at all the facts and then we would inductively conclude that oh well here's here's how to synthesize uh, all of these facts and here's now the axiom uh, or the scientific point that, that we've come to, okay? And, and that was really what Ms. Piercy calls a positivistic approach to knowledge. But it was ideal for all the Enlightenment thinkers of the time who thought, you know, we're blank slates and so we're going to uh, just look at all the data around us and the data around us and forms and shapes our thinking and so on and so forth. So uh, the church then began to apply those methods in science to their theological formulations. And, and here's what she says, with minds washed clean from merely human speculations, we confront the biblical text as a collection of facts that speak for themselves and then compile individual verses inductively into a theological framework, okay? Now that, that idea slipped into even Princeton Seminary, okay, where the cold orthodoxy was, right? But it was also underlying a lot of the American Revolution and the stuff we talked about last week with beginning to be suspicious of all traditional and, and inherited authorities. And I think, as I mentioned last week, really the only public authority to which one could credibly appeal began to be ultimately science because science was at least democratic and things could be put to a vote. Remember, we talked about that last week with the Supreme Court saying, we don't know what a person is. This is in the Dobbs opinion that's been leaked. Uh, so we're just going to turn it over to 50 states and let them vote democratically on whether the unborn are human beings and ought to be persons. Okay. So this idea of Bacon developed in the area of science, began to slip into politics. And then, as I said last week, this, this idea in politics began to slip into our theology. And we had a Baconian a revolution, you might say, in the way we looked at scriptures. Now, I don't want to step on toes here, so I'm just repeating what uh, Miss Piercy says in her books here, but she says this, few embraced Baconian hermeneutics, which is the word for how we interpret scriptures, okay, more enthusiastically than the members of the Restoration Movement, Disciples of Christ, Churches of Christ, and the Christian Church. As I mentioned last week, uh, I was in the Christian Church for several years in Cincinnati and, and loved being there. And she says that theologians within that tradition still continue to debate the merits of this Baconian hermeneutic even now. But one of the persons, and I'm going to give you some quotes from some of his writings, was Alexander Campbell. And he, too, like some mentioned last week, treated the American Revolution, she says, as a paradigm for inaugurating a new age within the church. He even said political regeneration should lead to ecclesiastical renovation. And he called for, quote, the inalienable right of all laymen to examine the sacred writings for themselves. And we talked about that last week. So that it begins to diminish the idea of study 
and learning about the history of the church and the development of theology and the wrestling of the back and forth throughout church history as doctrines were defined. It's just grab your Bible, sit down and read it, and you can know as much as the learned seminary professor. Now, I thought about what I said last week, and I want to clarify this. This is not to say that you can come to the Holy Scriptures with just a rationalistic mind and a lexicon and a dictionary and understand the Scripture. The Holy Spirit has to open up the Scripture to you. But what was taking place in the American church in the 1800s and going into the 1900s was, was a disavowal, in essence, of learning, of study, of thinking deeply. All that was being eschewed, and this Baconian idea fed into that. Anybody can sit down with their Bible and read it and come to the same conclusion as everybody else. And so Campbell wrote this, we are in science and philosophy Baconians. We build on Bible facts and documents and not on theories and speculations. And what is he referring to here? He's referring to essentially the old Aristotelian way of doing science, that there are certain things that we believe to be true, and from those we then begin to deduce certain truths about the natural world. So let me give you an analogy of how that might work. You might begin with saying, okay, let's, let's come to know who God is from the Scripture, and then from the Scripture we can deduce certain things about the nature of man or the nature of creation or uh, about soteriology. We can deduce many things once we come to know who God is. And if you'll remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says that nobody can lay any foundation other than that which is laid in Christ Jesus, who is the firstborn of all creation. That's why Paul's exhorting us. You need to know the mystery of God, of the Father, and of the Son. We talked about those mysteries the other week as well. And so Campbell goes on to say, the Bible is a book of, quote, plain facts. It's science or doctrine as merely the meaning of its facts, inductively gathered and arranged by every student for himself. Okay? And he urged people to do what he did, saying, quote, I have endeavored to read the scripture as though no one had read them before me. Now, I hate to say it, but when you stop and you think that way, it might sound like great, but what a, what a sense of arrogance really behind that. I can't learn anything from anybody that's come before me. I mean, when you read the New Testament, what was the Scripture? It wasn't Paul's epistle to the Galatians or the Ephesians or the Corinthians. He was quoting all the time from Isaiah. He was building his theology his understanding of this mystery of God from the foundation of the world and the revelation of God through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit on the basis of what had transpired before. Now, to Campbell's credit, she notes this, that Campbell was convinced that the main cause of disunity in the church was that everyone read Scripture from a perspective of a particular theological system. Now, I want to come back to that in a moment because that's very important, but you'll see and that's what Bacon was saying. We come into science with certain metaphysical concepts, okay, particular systems, 
And, and that changed the way then we look at the facts. So we got to clear our minds, get rid of all the systems, and just look at the facts and see what we can induce from those facts. And so he's saying, well, that's what's happened in theology. Specifically, he was reacting against the Catholic Church and the, the Reformed churches, uh, predominantly the Anglican, let's say, and the Presbyterian churches, okay, the Reformed theology churches. And he said, when we do that, it's like we're looking through, quote, colored glasses. And we just need to get rid of all of that beforehand. So Nancy Piercy says that brings about certain consequences, and here are some of them. She says this empiricist insistence that theology is a collection of facts led easily to a one-dimensional, flat-footed interpretation of Scripture. Now, what she's referring to here, let me explain in the next sentence. Metaphorical, mystical, and symbolic meanings were downplayed in favor of the plain meaning of the text. Now, it should not be hard to go through Scripture and realize there's a lot of typology in the Scripture. And, and the New Testament carries forward a lot of that typology. You'll see in Isaiah talking about water and springs of water. And so what does Jesus say there at the end? He says, come to me and you'll have springs of living water. And that's supposed to bring to our minds certain things that we associate with water. Now, the downside was some people took typology to remove all objectivity to the Scripture so that any word in any phrase could mean anything, but you can throw out the baby with the bathwater. And that's what she's saying. It became a rather flat-footed, mechanical, one-dimensional view of the Bible. And ultimately, my friends, as I have realized from the traditions in which I grew up, that you can get to some things that all of a sudden don't make sense. I'm treating this literally here, but I can't treat it literally there. So what does it mean to have a literal interpretation of the Bible. Now, the Bible is a form of literature. It's got typology and it's got poetry and uh, it's got analogy. And, and we have to read it like that. And she said, so what it wound up doing sometimes was providing little more than proof texting, pulling out individual verses and aligning them under a topical label with little regard for literary or historical context or even the larger organizing themes in the scripture themselves. So for example, we see lots of what we might call wilderness experiences with exoduses, right? We see uh, that happen with Israel. We see that happen with Jesus, except in reverse. He goes into the wilderness and comes out of the wilderness. But we see those things taking place in scripture patterns so it's not bad to sit here and say, well, let's look at the scripture and see if we can systematize it in a way. That's, that's called systematic theology. But it was, it was divorcing that look at the scripture, divorced from everything in the past, as if, it, if nobody in the past had ever known anything or gotten anything right. Now, Ms. Piercy goes on to say, you might think that that was continuing in the tradition of the Reformation with its emphasis on sola scriptura, but she said it was not, and indeed it was not. She notes this, the reformers retained an allegiance to the ecumenical creeds and councils of the church first five centuries, including the Apostles' Creed, 
which I never heard about growing up. The Nicene Creed, never heard about that one. The Athanasian Creed, the Councils of Chalcedon, Orange and Constantinople. And I have come to love the Creed of Chalcedon. It's a creed we need to recover for today in view of the totalitarianism that's taking place in our nation. But see, all that was jettisoned. I never heard about any of those things. She said, but, and as I noted last week, the reformers went back to Augustine and Athanasius and some of these early writers of the church that were part of the, quote, Catholic Church. So it was not a throwing of everything into the trash bin. It was an effort to reform what what had been said and maybe had been lost or twisted or gotten away from where it had started. This was, let's forget everything we know and start all over as if we can build a new church and a new ecclesiology from scratch, which, to be honest, think about America. It was a country built from scratch. So you see here how, how what's taking place in our culture and our politics is influencing the way we look at the church now and scripture now, rather than the scripture influencing the way we look and build our culture so much. Okay? Now, she, she mentions this, and it's, and it's really true, that you cannot empty your mind of everything when you come to any set of facts. She makes this statement, it's true. To think at all, we have to make at least some initial assumptions. If you're going to read, you have to assume that there is some public meaning to the words on those page, or otherwise the author could never communicate his or her idea to you if you gave every word your own meaning. So every scientific investigation always proceeds under the guidance of some controlling beliefs. They would say hypotheses. But what was beginning to happen is the church was throwing out all hypotheses. Boy, I hate to say this, but specifically what began to be thrown out was the first two chapters of Genesis. Yes, there's God and God created, but we've got to get to this salvation part, see. Genesis 3.15. Remember when we had Andrew Sandlin on? He talked about the difference between Genesis 1 and 2 Christians and Genesis 3 Christians. Remember how we used the quote a few weeks ago, uh, from the Cross Politics show with Jeff Schaefer, where he was asked the question, well, if there isn't any history, if there's not any earth, and there's not any body, and there's not any historical Jesus who historically rose from the grave, why can't I say that what I feel about my body is what's true about my body and change it any way I want to? And he said, you can't. There's no reason you can't say that. So it's impossible to come to thinking without some presuppositions without some initial assumptions. It's impossible. And yet, somehow, we thought we could, and we can't. Now, what she then says, that began to do, is that when we began to think that knowledge could be based on empirical facts unfiltered through any religious or philosophical grid or metaphysical grid, this, this view Bacon then persuaded Christians to set aside their own religious frameworks and, and to help join the crowd by saying, look, we can prove our religion just the way you prove your scientific stuff. And so we began to give away our religious presuppositions, our metaphysical presuppositions, to join the move towards this 
science fact-based inductive understanding of everything. And we saw what happened with that, right? At the Scopes trial. William Jennings Bryan had no answer to the questions that were being asked. And Christianity at that point began to say, I'll fly away. Uh, he asked me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Don't ask me any of these hard questions. Don't ask me to answer any of those things. And you know what? I'm going to retreat further so I'm not embarrassed. And, and you know what that did? This is what Nancy Piercy said, and it's so true. This idea of knowledge and that it could be religiously neutral made believers begin to feel that it was actually illegitimate to bring their faith into the classroom or the science lab. To be objective and unbiased, we had to treat the world as though it were a naturalistic system that could be known by strictly empirical methods. You see, we, we kind of gave into a methodology and then it became a worldview, and that's exactly what I was talking about with the way the transgender sports bill was argued. Again, if you're interested in getting the little book that I've written uh, toward Christian nihilism, uh, a short uh, analysis of two approaches to public policy, uh, send us an email at info at factn.org and, and get it and read it and you'll see how what I'm talking about is working its way into the way Christians argue for public policy. It's very Baconian. Look at the muscle size and the bone structure and this and that and let's measure all these empirical things and then from those things we'll induce and we'll inductively conclude what makes for fair competition. We can't come up with fair competition by saying there are these metaphysical, theological, biblical, creational categories of male and female, and within those categories, each can compete against each other, and that's fair. No, can't do it that way. You see how this is infiltrated? Oh, my goodness. Now, here's another consequence of this. If we concede that all physical phenomena can be explained by natural law, that there's no divine causality, well, we begin to really concede that the natural world operates autonomously by inbuilt natural laws that can be known by science. And then, well, what happens to religion? Where is it left? It's left in some emotional, spiritual, Gnostic, mystical, religious experience, and religion becomes subjective feelings, and that's exactly what's happened. And so you're entitled to have your religion, just have it in this subjective, Gnostic, upper story, spiritual thing with all the other subjective, feeling, emotive things. Just leave it out of your law and your public policy. Don't tell us that, that there are any categories up here that actually limit what we can do about defining marriage or, or what creates just competition in sporting events. We've taken the idea that because we all do have this sense of right and wrong, we can from that alone develop a full-blown moral philosophy. And then when we relegate scripture to this, let's leave everything out of our minds except for the words on the page and, and inductively determine what it's kind of meaning and well, you just wind up lost. And that's exactly what Kuiper was saying in 1898, Protestantism wanders about in the wilderness, hither and thither, and makes no progress. We had given up the whole foundation for having anything to say about the real world, and we had retreated into this spiritual vacuum of subjective, emotional feelings devoid of any intellectual content, 
or historical foundations, and we've been losing ground ever since. Now, I'm going to close with these these thoughts here because Miss Piercy says that just as this process of from the natural sciences of Baconian hermeneutics applied to the Bible and and the democratization of the scriptures, all that was taking place, science was actually changing itself. Science was moving away from the Baconian hermeneutic for science just as we're moving the Baconian hermeneutic into the scripture. And we've talked about that. Let me read this to you. Those of you who may have been listening for a while will remember me quoting from this book, The Metaphysical Foundations of American History by Roland Van Zandt. And he makes this statement as we're moving into the 20th century. He says this, It is precisely this world of given facts as specification of what is that 20th century science has repudiated. In other words, this Baconian method that we're just going to look at the facts and from those facts we can inductively determine the scientific axioms and truths. He says that's been repudiated. Now, he quotes Albert Einstein, quote, there is no inductive method which could lead to the fundamental concepts of physics. Failure to understand this fact constituted the basic philosophical error of so many investigators of the 19th century. That's the 1800s, see? <laughs> so, so, so we're just kind of behind the times. We're moving into the very method that, that science uh, is jettisoning and acknowledging that you, you can't come to the facts without some presuppositions, some assumptions. As, as Nancy Piercy said, you can't think at all if you can't assume the words on the page have a public meaning that everybody could grasp equally. You, you, you have to have some presuppositions. You have to have some assumptions about the nature of reality to even think, and we have jettisoned all of our history. We've jettisoned all of the, the things by which we have understood the scriptures in the past to say we can just scrabble it out ourselves, and now we're utterly lost. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end today here, and next week what we're going to do, and in the next couple of weeks, I am so excited about it, we're going to begin to look back at those things we have forgotten. And when I say forgotten, I'm going to admit, for my part, I didn't ever even know. They were never taught to me. And now that I have gone back to begin to read again the things of the past that were never important in the, in the tradition in which I grew up, well, I'm now seeing things I've never seen before in Scripture and things start to make sense and I'm beginning to understand the times and to figure out how I need to be building in the area of law and public policy that I just didn't understand. And I sure hope you'll, you'll join me. Yes, it's going to be some theology, but it is going to be so practical and I think it will be, as I said a couple of weeks ago, when you really study dogmatics and come to know God, it is an awesome thing. And it changes everything. And it's not dry and dull and boring. It changes you from the inside out and everything you do. And I can't wait to hop into those things. And I hope you will hop into them with me and enjoy them. And remember, if you're interested in the little booklet that describes how this 
Baconian hermeneutics that's devolved into the scientific understanding of what it means to be human with no real metaphysical, theological, biblical, creational categories, send us an email to info at factn.org and ask for Toward Christian Nihilism. And I'll look forward to seeing you next week on God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's factennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.